Scripture reading this morning comes from the book of 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35 through 49. In the Bible in front of you, you can find it on page 961 in the lower right. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory for the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown, sorry, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Well, recently, Karen and I, along with one of our kids, were able to spend an afternoon at Dumbarton Oaks down in the city. If you've never been there, you really should go sometime. It's a historic mansion in Georgetown, which belonged to the Bliss family until it was given over to Harvard in the 1940s. Uh, the mansion contains beautiful collections of Byzantine and pre-Columbian art. Uh, it's also the place where the Dumbarton Oaks Conference was held in 1944, coincidentally enough. It was there that the foundation for what later became the United Nations was laid. But the real draw, the real reason to go, in my opinion, is the botanical gardens that surround the house. Uh, these gardens spread out over 16 acres. They were designed by a famous landscape ar architect in the 20s and in the 30s and painstakingly and carefully put in place over time. And on a bright spring day, like the day that we were there most recently, there may not be a more peaceful, beautiful, verdant place on earth. There are hills covered in bright yellow forsythia. There are surprising little secluded gardens where you can sit by a gurgling fountain surrounded by a hedge of bright green boxwood. 
makes you feel like you're in a, a tiny little universe of your own. There are massive beds of bright tulips in the summer, roses and flowering vines flourish everywhere. And at the end, as you've gone through sort of the entire grounds, you end up on this massive lawn of perfectly manicured grass that leads up to this beautiful brick mansion. It's a place Karen and I have been going since we were teenagers. It was a joy to walk around, to soak in the, the beauty and the tranquility. And maybe you have a place like that in your life. Maybe you've been to a place like that on a vacation sometime. But there is something transcendent about that experience. You see incredible beauty, and you realize that you're in, in contact with something far greater than yourself. Walking around in, in all of that natural beauty reminds you that you were made for something like this. You were made to live like this. You were made to experience beauty and peace and flourishing. But you know, it's funny, there's, there's almost a downside to those kinds of experiences. And as, as we walked around on that sunny spring day, I felt myself uh, experiencing it. There's something in me that's just not sufficient for this experience. My mind, as I walked around, would begin to, to wander. I found myself surrounded by incredible beauty, wondering where I was going to park the car later when we went for dinner. I began to be overloaded by the sort of visual input. Just another incredible vista failed to awe me. My legs began to ache from walking all the hills. I found myself wanting to sit down. It's like I'm not equipped to, to handle this much contact with goodness. But it's not only that. I found that as the day went on, I became aware of a subtle kind of minor chord being played in the background of my mind. I found myself beginning to feel almost frustrated. Like, why do places like that exist on Earth? And yet I live in Sterling Park, right, where the only crop that seems to grow are mattresses left at the curb. Right, why did the Bliss family wake up in this incredible mansion surrounded by lush gardens and I live my limited number of days in a modest ranch house in an aging suburb? More importantly, less self-pityingly, if places like Dumbarton Oaks exist in the world, why do 700 million people around the world live out their limited number of days in extreme and horrifying poverty? How can it be? Why do some people live like that while others suffer? But when we turn to the Bible, we actually see an account of our world that makes sense of that experience. Because what we see in the Bible is that God created the world and he made it to be a place of incredible beauty. He created it to be a reflection of his love and his joy and his creativity. It's, we saw a small glimpse of that in Genesis chapter 2 that Seth read for us earlier. We still see a glimmer of that original intention in the, the spectacular beauty of a beach at sunset, or, or maybe the, the incredible diversity and grandeur that we see in the animals of the world. We see it in a, a snow-capped mountain peak or even in a well-tended garden. We see something of, of what God made this world to be. And at the very pinnacle of creation, God created Adam 
the first man, and Eve, the first woman. These first humans were different from everything else that God had made in that he made them in his image. Adam and Eve were to serve as God's representative to the world, exercising authority over creation on his behalf and pursuing his goals. Adam and Eve were tasked with the job of tending the garden, bringing order to the world, causing it to flourish. Their job was to create and to protect and to love under God's rule and as a reflection of his character. It's as if the created world and and human beings in particular were meant to be a perfectly polished mirror that would reflect God's glory and would show the universe his goodness and his joy and his beauty. But the world we live in isn't like that anymore. We all know that. Adam and Eve were not faithful to their creation purpose. They decided that this world that God had made should be theirs and not his. And so they sinned. They disobeyed God. They did what they wanted rather than what he wanted. And now, as a result, the world is badly fractured. The mirror that once gleamed so brightly, reflecting God's beauty and glory, is now terribly dimmed. We still get those occasional glimmers of that original glory. And when we see them, they thrill our soul. They move us deeply. In those moments, we realize we were created for something much greater than just making money and watching TV and buying things off the internet. But those glimpses are few and far between. That's not our daily life. The news is full of violence and strife and war. Lives are warped by poverty, disease, and death. Relationships are scarred by selfishness, jealousy, and cruelty. And if you're capable of even the slightest amount of self-reflection, you realize that when you have a deep longing for something greater and something more, for a better world, if if you know yourself at all, you know that you're not actually prepared for it. You weren't made for it. Like me, you have a limited capacity for appreciating beauty. You know, they say the average visitor to the Grand Canyon spends 17 minutes looking into the canyon before they get back in their car and drive away. We just can't take it in. Our minds drift. Our legs get tired. The other people around us begin to annoy us. The spell is broken. Right, the truth is, if you and I were transported back to the original creation, that world that we all want, where everything is beautiful and perfect, if you and I were put back in that creation, we would ruin it. And so if we are ever to have hope of a better life in a better world, if we're to have any hope that life could be characterized by a permanent joy, a permanent beauty, a permanent peace and meaning, not only does this world need to be transformed, but but I think we understand that we would need to be transformed as well in our souls and in our bodies. And the good news that we see in our passage for this morning from Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth, the the passage that Brian read for us just a few moments ago, is that this is actually exactly what God intends to do. He's not defeated by our rebellion. He's not confounded by our weakness. But he has acted in history through the Lord Jesus Christ to take away our guilt 
and to bring us back into a right relationship with him, to give us a longing to live in a world where he is loved and honored and obeyed. And there's a coming day when Jesus will return and the world will be remade and we will be changed so that we can live in it with him forever. So let's look here at our our passage for this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 to 49. If you remember the background to our passage that we uh, looked at a couple of weeks ago when last we were in 1 Corinthians 15, there seemed to be some people in the church that were claiming that there was no resurrection of the dead. These people believed in life after death, but they thought of it as a, a disembodied existence with our souls floating around in heaven or something like that. And one of the arguments that they made was that the idea of a physical and bodily resurrection was simply nonsense. After all, what is there to resurrect? Uh, The question is posed there in verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You see the problem. Take the Apostle Paul, for example. He's been dead now for almost 2,000 years. There is, for all intents and purposes, nothing left of his body. The atoms that made up his body have been absorbed and recycled and repurposed countless times. The Corinthians wouldn't have known this, but nowadays the the math has been worked out to, to know that there's about one molecule in every breath that you take that was also present in the last breath of Julius Caesar. Every bite of food you eat contains molecules that were once part of a human being, which is both gross and also a problem for the idea of a physical resurrection of the body. If we've been passing molecules back and forth with people for millennia, then to whom do they belong in the resurrection? Right, that's how we would ask the question that the Corinthians are asking. Right, it makes the idea of a physical bodily resurrection seem ridiculous. The French skeptic Voltaire made much of this. He used to mock Christians, picturing their vision of the resurrection as a kind of zombie nightmare where reanimated corpses wandered around in heaven. Even the French reformer John Calvin admitted uh, that this was a difficult uh, idea. Calvin says this, says, there's nothing more at variance with human reason than this article of faith, that is the bodily resurrection. For who but God could persuade us that bodies will, after having rotted away, or after they've been consumed by fire, or torn in pieces by wild beasts, be restored in a greatly better condition? Do not all our apprehensions of things straightway reject this? as a thing fabulous, nay, most absurd. But still, the Bible clearly teaches that the grave is not the end for our physical bodies. We saw that last time we were together in 1 Corinthians, that that Jesus' resurrection from the dead is the first fruits of our own. It's a guarantee that just as he rose from the dead physically, bodily, so we too, one day, will be raised. And to be clear, this is not an idea that originated with Paul. It wasn't like this was a doctrine that he came up with. 
This wasn't a belief that he established on his own. This was something the Lord Jesus himself taught. So we read in John's gospel, in John chapter 5, that he said this. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Listen, do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Lord willing, we'll have a chance to unpack that idea a bit more uh, next Sunday as we finish this chapter. But the question and the objection that Paul's addressing in our passage then is this. How can those who are, in Jesus' words, in the tombs come out? How can long-dead bodies ever hope to live again? And the answer that Paul gives is a good one. It's not a proof, per se. He doesn't explain the mechanics and tell us exactly how it works. Rather, he shows us that if we step back, we can probably see that we actually have some categories. We we have patterns in the world around us that make the idea a bit more plausible. And then Paul calls on us to believe in what God has clearly promised. So let's walk through Paul's explanation and his defense step by step. Uh, First, there in verses 36 to 38, you see Paul introducing uh, a principle of transformation from the natural world. So he says there in verses, starting in verse 36, You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and each kind of seed its own body. So Paul calls the person asking the question that he poses in verse 35. There in verse 36, he calls that person foolish. That's a tip-off that the people who are asking weren't doing so honestly. They weren't really seeking greater understanding or clarity. It seems that they were approaching the topic a bit more like Voltaire did using the apparent absurdity of Paul's claim to mock him. And so Paul begins by pointing out that this principle isn't so outlandish after all. And he points to the example of a seed. We're all familiar with what seeds look like. Something hard, something small, something apparently inert and dead. So think of a a sunflower seed maybe, or a pumpkin seed. If that dead little seed is buried in the ground, well, something amazing will grow up from it. And the thing that grows up is not really at all like the thing that was planted. So again, think of a sunflower seed. Black, hard, dead. If you were to take that seed right, and put it in the ground, in a short time you will have something spectacular. A bright yellow sunflower will grow up. Right? And that sunflower is utterly unlike this seed, but, there, but there's still a connection. 
Paul points out there in verse 37 that the thing you sow in the ground is not the same as the thing that grows up out of it. Right? There's nothing about a kernel of wheat that suggests the plant that will one day grow up from it. There's nothing about a little sunflower seed that makes you think bright yellow flower. And Paul says, so it is with us. The human body that goes into the ground can be thought of almost like a seed. It dies. It decays. And nothing about it particularly suggests a future state. But something else, something better awaits. Something that's not completely different. Right? Again, there's still some kind of organic connection between a sunflower seed and a sunflower. They are connected, but something that's completely transformed. So, Paul says, our resurrection body will have some kind of connection, some sort of identity with our present body. In some way, it will be similar. It will be appropriate to you as an individual. But it will be like a plant grown up from a seed. The example of a seed sown in soil shows us that, that in this world, we already know unexpected physical transformations are possible. And it's important to notice how that transformation happens. It's not by accident, Paul says, but it's because God has decided that it will be so. Look there in verse 38, speaking of the, the plants, God gives it a body as he has chosen and to each kind of seed, its own body. It's God's activity. It's God's power. It's God's decision. There in verse 42, Paul tells us, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. In the same way that God turns cold, hard, dead seeds into glorious flowers, so God will transform whatever is put into the grave into a resurrection body, into a form that he determines. So can a decayed body, disintegrated for a thousand years, be made into something glorious? Of course not. Can a seed turn into a plant? Of course not. Unless God does it. That all skepticism that might be leveled at the idea of a bodily resurrection is resolved in God's sovereign intention. There in verses 39 to 42, Paul gives a further illustration of his point. He shows us how an earthly body can be made to live in heaven. Again, he's responding to a kind of logical objection. How can human, earthly flesh, which decays, be made to live in heaven for eternity? How does that work? Are, are we cursed just to continue getting older for all time? Right? How can Paul say in, in verse 50, which Lord willing we'll consider next week, how can Paul say the, the perishable will inherit the imperishable? How is it that these bodies of ours could ever live in heaven for eternity? There in verse 39, Paul lists out different kinds of flesh that exist in our world. And it seems like he lists it out there in, in descending order of complexity. You have humans and animals living on earth. You have birds living in the sky. You have fish living in the water. They all, Paul says, have a different kind of flesh a flesh that God has created for their environment. There's a different kind of skeleton, a different kind of musculature, 
based on whether you live on the land or fly in the air or swim in the sea. There in verses 40 to 41, he points out that this principle holds when you look at different kinds of celestial bodies, the differences between stars and and planets and such. There in verse 41, he lists them in descending order of glory or brightness. He says the sun is brighter than the moon. The moon seems brighter to us than the stars. Even the stars, Paul says, vary from one another in terms of their brightness. And Paul's point here is that God is perfectly capable of making many different kinds of bodies. He makes earthly flesh for earthly creatures. He's given us the bodies we need to live on earth. He's given birds the bodies they need to live in the sky. He's given fish the bodies they need to swim in the ocean. God's made the sun and assigned it its brightness according to his purpose. He's made the moon and the stars with their own appropriate brightness. And so Paul says it will be with us. If God can do all of that, it's nothing to him to give us bodies, to prepare us with bodies that are fit and ready to live in eternity. That's Paul's conclusion there in verse 42. Uh, We read there, uh, going through verse 44. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. There in verse 42, Paul reminds us that what is put into the ground is perishable. The dead body will not last but decays into nothing. Paul says that it's characterized by weakness in verse 43. To get a sense of what he means, just think of the, the frailty that characterizes someone on their deathbed. Our bodies are sown in weakness. Right? Even the most noble, even the most courageous death is a dishonorable, undignified end for someone made in God's image. It seems to be what Paul's referring to there in verse 43. Human beings were not made to die. It's an unworthy end for God's creation. It's the bitter fruit of our sinful rebellion against him. Death is a sign that we live under a curse that sin has brought into the world. But, Paul says, what is raised from the grave, that new body that you will one day receive, he says it's a completely different thing altogether. It will be imperishable. It will never break down. It will never decay in the slightest. This resurrection body, Paul says, will be glorious. Instead of bodies that constantly remind us what's wrong with us, in the resurrection, your body will be in keeping with the perfect life that we have in heaven. There will be nothing unattractive, nothing ugly, nothing lamentable about our personal appearance. Paul says there we will be raised in power, The resurrection body will have no disability. There will be no failure, no weakness, no 
diminution, no dysfunction. Brothers and sisters, just stop for a minute and think about what that will be like. Paul doesn't give us a ton of specific details, but he gives us a picture, enough that we can have a sure hope that you will spend eternity in a body that never lets you down, that never fails you, never limits you. That's your future. That's what eternity will be like. And for Paul, all of this is possible. All of this is a sure hope for us because of the Lord Jesus. You remember this entire chapter is a reflection on the resurrection of Jesus himself. All of these glorious realities are due to what Jesus has accomplished. So if you look there in verses 44 to 45, Paul says, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. There in verse 44, Paul says that we are sown, we are put into the grave as a natural body. But we'll be raised one day as a spiritual body. Earlier in the letter, Paul used these same two words, natural and spiritual, to denote unbelievers, natural, and believers, spiritual people. Paul said those who do not belong to Christ are natural. That is to say they belong to this world. They belong to this order of things. Their their home is in this present age, which is designed and designated to perish. But Paul says those who are in Christ are spiritual. There, he doesn't mean that, that we're incorporeal, that we, that we don't have a body, that we're just floating spirits. Rather, we are people of the spirit. The, the realm to which we belong is heaven. We belong in the eternal world that is to come. The body that you're in right now is a natural body. It belongs to this realm of existence. It is of this earth, and as such, it is destined to pass away, Paul says. But the body that you receive at your resurrection will be a spiritual body. It'll be like the body of the Lord Jesus himself. It will have an eternal existence with God, empowered and enlivened by the Holy Spirit himself. Paul says there in the second half of verse 44 that the existence of the the present natural body leads us inevitably to the conclusion that there will be a future spiritual heavenly body. That, of course, is exactly what the Corinthians were arguing against. And so Paul moves on to prove his point. In verse 45, he makes a comparison between Adam, the first man, literally, as we saw, made from the dirt, from the earth, the one who, by his sin, brought death into the world. He compares Adam to the Lord Jesus. He calls him there the the last Adam. The man not made from the, from the dirt, but conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary. The one who is now resurrected. The one who never sinned. Who lives forever in a glorious and eternal body. Paul compares those two. Remember back in verse 22. He told us, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Here in our passage for this morning, Paul is expanding on that idea. In verse 45, he 
he references the creation account back in Genesis 2 that we read earlier to the effect that Adam ushered in our earthly existence in this kind of decaying body. But now Christ has ushered in what will be our eternal existence in heavenly bodies because he's been raised from the dead in a glorious form. So Paul says there in verses 46 to 48, but it's not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Again, the comparison is between Adam, the first man, and the Lord Jesus. Paul calls him the second man. The idea is that Adam stands at the the front of a long line of descendants. Physically, we all come from Adam. But even more importantly, we we are his children spiritually as well. When Adam chose to disobey God, he brought sin and death into the world. And as a result, we are his spiritual children. We've inherited the same spiritual condition. Again, this is what he meant back in verse 22 when he said, In Adam all die. Because we are in Adam, we are naturally alienated from God, cursed to physical death, facing his judgment. Naturally, that's who we are. But the good news is there is a second Adam. There is a a man from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, God's own son, who took on human flesh, who had no earthly father, and so was not born into Adam's sinful line. He did not inherit Adam's sinful nature, but he was born of a woman, fully human, able to stand as our representative. And while Adam, the first man, disobeyed, the Lord Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience, the life that Adam should have lived and that you and I should have lived. And on the cross, Jesus took the punishment for all of the sins of all of his people. Three days later, God the Father raised him from the dead in victory, in vindication, to show that his sacrifice was acceptable on our behalf. And so now we have real hope. We don't need to be under the curse of the first Adam's sin. We can instead be blessed by the obedience of the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. For those who trust in Christ, there will certainly be a resurrection to life. The one that Paul talks about here. Power, glory, incorruptibility. But for those who persist in their sin, there will also be a resurrection. But as Jesus said back in John chapter 5, it will be a resurrection to judgment. And so, brothers and sisters, let me point out as we conclude two ways that I think what Paul says here can help us live our lives now. Paul's vision for an eternity spent in a new body, incorruptible and imperishable. First, I think that that hope and that promise enables us to endure now with joy. As we negotiate life in a world that often disappoints us, as we live our lives in bodies that decay and decline, it helps us, I think, to know that this life is not the end of the line. It's meant to point beyond itself. This life points us to something more glorious, more permanent. 
Remember what we read earlier in our service from Philippians chapter 3. Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Brothers and sisters, we need to be reminded that we do not belong here. In a very real way, our citizenship is in heaven. This life was never intended to be a matter of settled accomplishment. This life is a one of waiting for the Lord Jesus to come and to bring our salvation to its conclusion. I think that's a helpful reminder because if you, again, are at all thoughtful, this life, even at its very best, is going to leave you longing for more. Right, Dumbarton Oaks is glorious, but it creates an ache in your soul because you can't live there. The joys of this life are wonderful, but even the best of them are, are tarnished by the knowledge that they don't last, that the people you love and the things that you've worked to accomplish, they, they must eventually pass away. And either that, that longing in you for something more will become a crushing burden, that the poison pill that ruins everything in the end, and so there's nothing you can do except try to ignore it, try to keep that painful and obvious truth at bay, which is why people turn to drugs and alcohol and consume porn. Or you can let that longing in you, that, that emptiness that you feel in the presence of beauty, you can let it be a clue. You can allow it to be a key. You can allow it to tell you that, in fact, you were made for something more. And so that sense that something's deeply wrong with this world doesn't lead us to despair, but rather it leads us to hope. Because we're not a stranded wanderer. We're not lost in the desert. We are weary travelers heading home. Friend, if you're in Christ, you will spend eternity free from the present encumbrances of life. You will live in a new body, one marked by ability and strength and incorruptibility. Whatever suffering, whatever loss that you feel today that you bring into this room with you, oh, you will one day shed it like a traveler's pack when you inherit eternity. I think this passage helps us to make sense of our lives right now. Look at what Paul says there in verse 49. He says, Just as we've borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Remember, God created the world to reflect his character, his creativity, his goodness, and his beauty. And that he made Adam and Eve, particularly in his image, as, as mirrors that would reflect his glory to the world. Well, when they chose to sin, they lied about God. They declared that he actually wasn't worthy of trust and obedience. And you and I bear that same image. We are distorted, fun house mirrors. Right? The, the, the image that we give off of God is a distorted one. When we sin, when we are selfish or proud or angry or lustful or profane... We are reflecting, as it were, not the image of God, but the image of the man of dust. But in his great love, God wasn't content to leave us there. 
The Lord Jesus didn't stay at a distance. But get this, in Romans 8.3, Paul actually says that Jesus took on your image. Paul says he came in the, the likeness, in the image of sinful man in order to do away with sin. That's how much he loves you. Jesus is the perfect son of God. The Adam who never sinned, the Israel who never went after idols, the one who obeyed his father perfectly and bore our sin and triumphed over it as his resurrection. And so now, when the Holy Spirit unites us to Christ by faith, all that Jesus has, all that he is, all that he's done becomes ours. And so we're destined to bear his image for eternity. Physically, we will be given resurrected bodies like his. Spiritually, we will be transformed to look like him. We will have our original creation purpose restored to us. That, that dignity for which we made will be given back to us. We will be forever glorious as we shed our weakness, shed our sin at the grave, and are resurrected to reflect something something of God's glory to all the world. And brothers and sisters, that affects the way we live our lives today. Because God says he's using everything in your life to that end. Everything in your life is serving that purpose of bringing you to that place where you will live in that way. So Paul says in Romans chapter 8, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. You may be familiar with that comforting promise there in verse 28. God uses everything for good. Oh, that gets us through quite a bit of sorrow and difficulty, doesn't it? He uses everything for his good purpose. But do we stop to ask what that good purpose is? Because verse 29 tells us that his purpose is not primarily our ease or our comfort, but rather our conformity to the image of his son. And that means we can endure trials now, knowing that God will use them to make us look more like Jesus to make us more like his son in this life. He'll use difficulties to, to wean us off the soul-poisoning pleasures of sin to make sure that we make it safely to heaven. We can resist temptation knowing we've been called to reflect a greater image. And ultimately, brothers and sisters, we know God will achieve his great purpose, a world made new, that shows his glory, a redeemed people that reflect the image of his perfect son. And so whatever we endure in this life, you can be sure it will be worth it when we get there. When we see a world that makes Dumbarton Oaks look like a slum, when we're there in bodies that we can't even imagine because they are so glorious and so strong, and when we're there and we see the one who died for us, so that we could be with him? Oh, brothers and sisters, it will all be worth it. Let's pray. 
Oh, Heavenly Father, what great love you have shown to us. That despite our sin, our weakness, and our rebellion, you have known us. You've predestined us. You have called us according to this great purpose. That you are conforming us to the image of your Son. That you are making us look more and more like the Lord Jesus every day. Oh, Father, we do wait with great anticipation for that day when the Lord Jesus returns and when our salvation will be complete and consummated, when we will be transformed and our lowly bodies and our sinful natures will give way to incorruptibility and imperishability. Holy Spirit, would you help us to live each day with that promise in mind? Would you help us to be heavenly-minded people, to live as citizens of that world even as we live in this one? And we pray all of these things for the glory of Christ. Amen.